Hello, welcome everyone, and thank you for joining us today and preferring uh, Mops Talk over the Olympics and catching up on all the drama that's been happening. Um, super excited today to have uh, Jake join us from uh, Retool, um, before that from um, Carta, and even before that from Eventbrite. I think it's going to be a super exciting conversation around a lot of different topics. I think we'll dive into kind of the, the PLG stack, how to think about building your stack in a you know, an environment that has a little bit more data, that is a little bit more fluid, um, as well as talking a bit about some of the lessons that he learned through his time at Eventbrite, a little bit of a larger company and how that led to a lot of decisions that he's now making while building the um, Mops and RevOps function at a tool, at a company, sorry, like Retool that's growing super fast. Um, but yeah, Jake, thanks a ton for being with us today. Uh, really excited to to have you here. And folks, please, yeah, use the use the chat, uh, ask questions if you have any for um, for Jake. If there are things you want us to dive a little bit uh, deeper into, more than happy to do so. Um, but yeah, without further ado, um, I would like to um, yeah, like give people some time to to join. And and I think Jake, you have a pretty interesting background of like you know starting in in sales and then moving to to Moss, which I think gives you like a pretty deep appreciation for the role of the the people that you're in big part supporting so maybe to kick things off can you tell us like a little bit about your background story and how you came to uh where you are today yeah absolutely yeah first of all francis thanks for having me on super excited to chat about this stuff um i can kind of start from the very beginning if that's kind of interesting so born and raised in texas moved to the bay area about i guess in 2014 so eight years which is kind of crazy um before that, I worked. You know, I was at a brewery right before I moved out here, so kind of, kind of jumped right into tech from kind of dove in on the uh, cold day, I guess. Um, but when I first moved out here, I worked for a really small YC-backed smoothie delivery startup as their first SDR, which this is back before I even knew what an SDR really was. And first job in tech, it's really interesting. I learned a lot about just kind of the way, you know, kind of that you know start hashtag startup life kind of goes. Um, it's super interesting, very hectic. Uh, after doing that for for a little bit, I moved on to a slightly larger startup. It's called Boom Train. It's about 25 people. Was an SDR for them as well. And in the back of my mind, marketing was always something I was interested in. I was interested in. I studied that in school as my major. But you know, getting into the workforce, I realized just how how many facets of marketing there really are, and how and I wasn't really sure kind of what was the most interesting to me. So I when I was working at you know Boom Train, I think we were 25 people at the time. We had one guy doing marketing. And he knew I was interested and he came to me and said, look, I don't really have anything super, you know, I don't really have a ton of marketing needs except for someone to own HubSpot. Do you want to do that? And I said, I don't really know what that means, but sure. <laughs> so he kind of put me through the HubSpot certification, gave me, you know, admin access to the tool, kind of walked me through it. And that's kind of how I really got into marketing ops. Basically, it was just kind of on my own fumbling through building landing pages or helping run webinars or sending emails or creating lead score kind of logic. And it was super interesting. I really enjoyed it. I didn't really know what I was doing, um, and, but I was I was having fun. So a couple months later after doing that, I decided to kind of get, I guess you would say a more formal education. So I left Boom Train and joined Eventbrite it was back in 2016. So I, was, I joined, you know, Eventbrite was about a 500 person company at the time. And I joined a MOPS team of about five. So perfect environment for me to just kind of come in and learn. It was a very you know, well-established company. Had a really, really strong and kind of humming go-to-market 
stack and engine in place. This is a really good place to learn. I ended up, you know, starting off supporting, we had international marketing teams and I supported seven different international marketers just from anything they needed executed in Marketo, landing page webinar, uh, ebook, email sends. So I just kind of built that muscle just from the campaign execution standpoint really early on. It's super fun. And I loved working with these different teams. Um, and then was kind of the thrust into, we, we had a reorg and I got to work more more full full funnel, uh, I guess more full go-to-market funnel from an ops standpoint with one of our larger offices, the, our UK team. So I had to work with a marketing team around, you know, what kind of campaigns they run, how they generate QLs, and then got to move down to working with the SDRs and how they, you know, kind of full circle back to where I started, seeing how they get MQLs and inbound leads and how they work those and just kind of, you know, almost consulting and helping, you know, drive change management and run experience that is super fun. I'll kind of pause there, Francis, but that's kind of the, the initial spiel on how I got into ops. Yeah, that's awesome. And, and maybe one thing that kind of um, at least jumps to my mind, I think it's always super interesting when um, I think people move from the area that's being supported to the area that supports. And I think that, you know, move from SDR to to mobs or like managing at least the uh, the HubSpot instance. And I think if I remember correctly, you were mentioning that <clears throat> one of the big things that you worked on was the, the lead score in HubSpot, which is really interesting because that's probably like one of the big areas of contention between sales and marketing. So I guess like from from your perspective, like, you know, what kind of learnings are like, do you think this is something that more companies should be doing of actually like taking on SDRs to, you know, bring into the team that's actually going to be managing that part of historically is more of a marketing function? I think what's interesting about my experience, which to me kind of makes it feel just kind of second nature is just given the environment where I first started owning HubSpot, you know, small 25 person company, one and a half people doing marketing and we had a, maybe like a nine or 10 person sales team. Just given that I was coming directly from that sales world and honestly not really knowing much, I, I honestly just kind of defaulted to, you know, what I would do or what I would want as an SDR and also just talking to the sales reps. It just became very, it, it, to me, it was the most natural thing to be like, hey, look, here's this thing I'm trying to build, you know, lead scoring or even email nurtures or anything. And I have, I have ideas, but at the end of the day, like, you know, you guys are the ones that are the recipients of these leads and or MQLs or what have you what are some things that you would want? And so that kind of just early on was, I guess, one of the first principles that was really just, I guess, born out of necessity, really had a small business. And I've kind of taken it forward in my entire career. Right. <clears throat> do you see, I mean, do you feel like it is something that kind of gets lost as you get into a bigger org, like reflecting on your experience at, I think like Eventbrite or Carta, which had like a pretty large sales team, but a smaller marketing team where kind of like, you start getting in your own way where you no longer have the dialogue between like the two sides of the, um, yeah, of the MOPS function. A absolutely. I'll give you a really concrete example. Um, Eventbrite, like I mentioned, I joined as a 500 person company. I want to say the marketing team globally was 70 sales team was probably a hundred. So, you know, just operating at a really, really large scale from the, from the beginning of my time there and, but had an incredible synergy. The team worked really well together. We, I didn't, I never really felt that kind of like cliche marketing sales uh, tension. And so I kind of got to work at what I, what I feel like still today I think is one of the most like smooth and collaborative go-to-market orgs um, in my career. And when I left to join Carta next, I joined Carta and it was about 300 people. 
the marketing, the sales team was about 60 at the time. And the marketing team was like four. <laughs> so like super tiny. And one of the reasons I left Eventbrite was because I wanted to build my own kind of systems from scratch. And so I got to do exactly that. And I think one of the biggest mistakes I made at Carta was coming in, having seen a really well-oiled machine, have a really strong idea of what I wanted to build from a system and process, doing that at Carta, and then slotting the people in last. So I built, you know, built the system for the first time. I think it went, it, you know, there's definitely things that could have gone better, but by and large, I think it was, you know, a, a performant, a performance system. However, I made the mistake of not bringing the people along for the ride, people being the SDRs, AEs, and, and in some cases, even my own marketing team I supported along for the ride, showing them, you know, first and foremost, say, hey, here's my idea. Before I build anything and create any processes, does this make sense? Because ultimately, I, I think I, I personally forgot in my own, you know, kind of my own principle that I'm anything, you know, in a marketing ops world, you, you're, you serve internal stakeholders, usually the sales and go-to-market team. Building something without really bringing them along to the ride, whether it works or not, is only going to kind of grind against itself. And I saw that firsthand and definitely, definitely something I kind of, you know, a mistake I made, learned, learned from it and kind of have moved on and kind of flipped that ordering. Yeah. And I think uh, if I remember correctly, you were mentioning like some details around that where I think you were saying at, at Carta, <clears throat> you tried introducing some kind of like mandatory field for opportunity creation, which kind of backfired. And that was like a good reminder of how important it is to, you know, get buy-in from the kind of end users of whatever process you're trying to introduce, even though it always seems like th there's this thing like, and you know, one of our core values at Pat is like customer centricity. And I, I do feel like it's something we need to repeat all the time, right? Cause you always want to focus back to like, what's best for you, what, what makes your process easier to, to build but at the end of the day like you know it's what's more important is like how does it make things easier for the customer and as a mops person the customer is often sales and yes it's creates like easier reporting when we have these mandatory fields there but then it's just a nightmare for them to potentially create opportunities and that's when like the process kind of gets in the way so like, yeah curious to like if you don't mind sharing a little bit about that story yeah <laughs> yeah i mean one of the things that we kind of struggle with and again this is this is one of those just learnings I, I gathered just kind of going after having built stuff at, at Carter from scratch. Um, attribution is always kind of a just a sticky thing to get right or tricky thing, mainly because of just the way the sales cycle was working, it was so quick. Um, and we also didn't have a ton of standardization around like, you know, opportunities, opportunities, but we didn't really have like contact role standardization, things like that. So one of the things I want to introduce, and I, and I guess beyond that contact roles are where we, we tracked um, attribution data at the time. You know, it's a way to do it. It's not the best way, but it is a way. <laughs> and so I was finding myself having to kind of manually clean up attribution a lot because we just wouldn't always have contact roles on an opportunity because we didn't require it. And so what I decided to do was, and this is kind of a big, big mistake in learning I, I kind of carried forward was just say, hey, I'm going to make it so you can't create an opportunity. You can't move an opportunity to like stage two, I think, without it having a contact role on it. And what that meant was if you're an SDR and you're trying to get, you know, get your hit your quota and create these stage two opportunities, then you were suddenly blocked by this thing that you'd never seen before. And I remember very clearly having an error error message to reach out to me directly. And it, you know, we turned I turned it on with a sales ops teammate and like 
within like 20 minutes, I was just getting like peppered with slacks and the manager was like, we need to get on a call now. And so I got on and I was like, look, like, here's why I need to do this. And he's like, that's, that's, you know, that would have been nice to know. Again, it's one of the things where marketing officers a million ways to do something right. And I think, you know, I, I was doing this because I thought it was the right thing to do, but I neglected to really put myself in the shoes of the people that are, that are actually using the systems every day and, and dealing with the processes. So something I definitely carried forward um, and kind of, you know, we ended up like turning that thing off within like like 20 minutes of, of activating the rules. So it was, yeah. It's, it's an interesting one because I find that it's, it's a topic that comes up in like internal and external facing elements of the MOPS role, right? If you look at a lot of the, I have a bit of a pet peeve around forms. Generally, there's like some forms that are super long and it's asking you, hey, what country are you in? And like what company size and blah, blah. And I know that the reasons they're asking me this question is to simplify the internal routing to figure out which rep is going to get assigned my demo request. But as a user, I freaking hate this. I'm like, don't ask me like the size of my company. Either go do some research. I mean, it's out there on LinkedIn. Or it's like, have me talk to someone. Like I, I'm literally knocking at the door to potentially buy software from you, from you and you're making it incredibly hard. And it's funny because that, that's another thing where it's, you know, the process gets in the way of the the end user of what you're trying to do. Because like, first off, it's terrible for the potential customer. Then it also means like fewer demo requests for the reps. And it's something that, you know, is supposedly makes the, the routing easier. And like, similarly to what you're mentioning internally, right? If we want to have easier routing, we want to have every opportunity, have every field filled in. We want to have like all the contact roles populated on the opportunity. It just never happens, right? So I think there's there's something there of like how, I guess like embracing a little bit of the chaos and embracing the imperfection to some extent from a process perspective in, in the hopes of making the, you know, either customer end customer journey or the, like salespeople's journey easier. Yeah, I, I think that's exactly right. I mean, I was I had instilled in me and my old manager at Carta, like there's a hierarchy of how you consider projects, customers first, and then um, then revenue and then margin. And if it doesn't satisfy number one, then she's like, I will support you to push back on it and not even do it at times. And so I think, and, and again, marketing ops is interesting because it serves internal. It serves customers on both fronts: internal customers, you know, stakeholders, usually in the go-to-market team, and then also external facing, like by way of forms. Like I own forms. I've owned I've owned forms at every single company, and that's always a tricky kind of balancing act. Like sales team wants more information on the forms, and we want to try and make it as frictionless for the users as possible. Um, so it's a very interesting thing. And, and yeah, I, I, we're we're. Kind of having internal conversations on this all the time you know a retool even on our demo experience like what's like the bare minimum stuff we can ask people while still being able to get routing right and get and and i think where it comes to comes in play is that we want to ask enough questions so that customer gets a good experience we want to just keep the friction low but make sure that you know they're talking to the right people in our team especially with a with a retool with a more technical product it's very important that we that we understand or it gives Get, get them in context on who can uh, talk to their needs and, and, and you know, get them squared away. And so at, at Retool today, um, so there, yeah, what are you asking? Are you testing different things? So I know there's like a couple of fields that you're asking for of like how people want to host, how did they hear about Retool? Um, curious to hear if you're doing any testing around that or 
um, yeah, or if you've implemented any tools to actually reduce the amount of information that uh, is required. Absolutely. So that's, yeah, on our, you know, retool.com slash demo, just a HubSpot form on there that goes right into our system. And to minimize friction, we added Clearbit, like live enrichment on there. So based on what email you put in, if, if Clearbit knows your first, last company, um, other like company size, things like that, then we'll just dynamically hide some of these fields just to kind of, you know, get, like I said, get as much information for us internally without without just hammering people with fields. Um, and also I think it's, a, we consider a good thing, you know, add, having a little bit of friction for certain, for certain people that are curious. Like if you're, you know, if you're, if you don't, if you don't have a, if you're signed with a Gmail account, then chances are, you know, retail might be a good fit for you from a personal use. And like, just that's where the self-serve uh, route is going to be easier. Or maybe if you have a support question or something like that, just trying to add enough friction for you to kind of stop and consider and be like, you know, Hey, like I'm realizing quickly as I fill this out that this is going to be a much like kind of longer like price based or or you know enterprise type discussion. I'm trying to figure out a way to kind of do that. And to that end, we're always testing stuff. We're always trying to figure out, you know, do we do we actually need this field, or is the wording on our page itself the right, or are these fields actually you know are, can we add more fields without being too dismissive? Like one of the ones we added recently was an optional. How did you hear about retool? Oh yeah, there we go. Yeah, that optional, how did you hear about retail question, which honestly, my, my, my old manager was like, we should just ask this just to see, just to overlay or, or gut check that answer against the lead source data we get. And it was really interesting. And we start to learn more about, you just get more qualitative feedback on our, um, you know, paid efforts or what type of sponsorships we're running or placements in like, you know, newsletters or podcasts, what have you. And it's really cool to kind of get that qualitative feedback in a way that we feel is not super disruptive to uh, this experience. Right. And maybe for, for those who, who don't know what it looks like. So if we, so if, if we put something in that, um, so you're saying you're using Clearbit in the, in the background connected with HubSpot. So for an email that Clearbit knows, it's not asking for any more information. I mean, it could potentially we, we, automatically yeah. select so this. One thing we're actually considering like tactically on this is the, that employee pick list. Mm -hmm. Um, that's, that is, that is one of those, like, we need that for routing at the moment, but we're always right. trying to figure out ways that we can kind of like, you know, get around that. And, and we also have systems built in, you know, we have Clearbit that is live enriching stuff. Oh yeah, there you go. You can see it's asking you for, to kind of prove yourself out a bit more to us, so to speak. Um, but we're asking that, 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 um, pick list field just mainly because it's like, we want to be able to break these into our, into our right segments, but it's always, you know, it's first party data. It's not always perfect. And it may be one of those things where it's just kind of a nuisance. So we're, we're actually figuring out ways to kind of like, do we still need this kind of reevaluating that constantly? Right. And I know like some companies is something that we, we had done, um, was the team at segment was like pre-populating this based on the, um, the email that was, uh, that was put in just to, like again, like remove, uh, remove the friction. And I guess like this one is because it's like a pretty big, it's a substantial change to how the product is going to be deployed. Exactly. Um, and kind of what you're, uh, you're looking for. Um, yeah, yeah no, that awesome. That makes a, makes a ton of sense. So kind of the, um, do you know of any other tool? I know like Clearbit has like a pretty deep integration with, um, um, with HubSpot forms, have you been able to play around or test any other uh, tools that would integrate well in that kind of scenario? 
So we have chili pepper in there as well. Uh, and chili pepper has been immensely helpful just to, you know, pops up the calendar at the right after you fill out the form, just so we can get someone get, you know, you can self-select your own time. We don't have to, we don't have to put the onus on our, you know, SDR team or AE team to reach back out to us on that request a demo. We can give them the, the, I guess, comfort that they have something, they can just pick something on their own time. And also having chili pepper allows us to kind of tailor that experience a bit more. Like one thing we're thinking about right now is that typically people that are filling out that form with the, we have like our one to 25 employees is still the smallest bucket. And typically we're seeing that people that are selecting that are more inclined to just need like help, like support questions or just, you know, troubleshooting or something. Uh, we're able to kind of quickly just say like, hey, let's not offer them a, uh, a calendar link right away and instead have, you know, an SDR reach back out to them and say like, hey, you know, saw your demo request, do you need help? Do you need help with something? Or if you do have a, you know, if you are interested in pricing, you know, just kind of, they can kind of qualify it from there while still really the end user doesn't really experience anything different. It's more so just on us to be able to, to kind of, I guess, free up reps time from potentially lower quality and, and higher quantity calls. That makes sense. Um... Yeah, that makes a ton of sense. And I was curious on the, um, um, I mean, there's, uh, we, t we talked about uh, HubSpot and maybe kind of like switching a little bit into some of the specificities of, of Retool. So Retool um, has a, uh, a PLG motion. So there's like the ability to, there's like a completely free, actually it's freemium, right? There's like a completely uh, free version of the tool. There's a um, kind of like trial version where you can try like some of the higher plans for free. And then there's like a full on enterprise. So I think it's, it's pretty cool because it covers like all these different facets of the um, uh, PLG motion. So one of the, one of the challenges that I see a lot of people run into is the historical marketing automation platforms, you know, like the HubSpot, Marketo's, Eloqua, all of those weren't necessarily designed for that kind of volume of event data, right? They're expecting like potentially like, page views and things like that. A lot of them are anonymous, um, but they don't necessarily deal well with a lot of product activity data. And something that we had talked about, they were tools that were designed for that, that never seemed to manage to, you know, really make it as big as we expected. Um, I think like autopilot was one of them. I'm seeing iterable more and more show up as something that people are using coming from that B2C space and therefore like dealing better with that, with the high volume. Um, but anyway, like every and customer IO was another one, like with a deep integration with uh, with segment. So you I mean, I'm sure you evaluated a lot of these um, different tools out there and you ended up going with HubSpot. Do you mind sharing a little bit? Um, what were the big factors that led to that decision, um, even just to help people that are out there and, and thinking about, you know, what map they should use for uh, their PLG motion? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, to give a little bit of background. So when I worked at Eventbrite and Carta, both of these companies were sales led motion. Like we just really are like intake form type of motion. Like the funnel really began, email funnel began with a demo request or a content form download. And in those situations, we, we had Marketo at both places. Honestly, you know, it's six one way, half dozen the other with Marketo or Pardot or HubSpot, what have you in that kind of sales led sense. Uh, when I joined Retool uh, almost a year and a half ago, this is the first PLG company I've ever worked at. And so that motion was a little bit foreign to me. I mean, the, the marketing ops problem set, I don't think really has changed. And, and the charter I was kind of given by my manager was saying like, look, like understand our tech stack and help us build something that is going to scale with our business, like scale or go to market motion as our business grows. 
And so when I came in, the the bedrock pieces of our of our tech stack, you know, segment, which just ingests everything from the trial signups, people that are logging to our product, that are customers, capturing all the product usage data and track calls and whatnot. That that's that was not going to change. That and that was just a function of me just kind of learning just a little bit more how that works and make sure we have the right data on our, you know, when someone signs up or we pass the right traits and things like that. Um, we had customer IO in place for email marketing, just kind of our onboarding email drips or some like one-off like webinar invites, things like that. And customer IO works great with segment. It, it plays super nicely, integrates really well. It's a great kind of WYSIWYG uh, workflow builder. Problem is, is that Salesforce was the other bedrock component of our go-to-market system. That was a source of truth for our enterprise sales motion, just really for our, for our customer data as well, even in our self-serve motion. And the, the challenge I kind of quickly distilled was that um, uh, customer IO and Salesforce don't have an integration. And further, we also just had a custom script that was passing stuff from segment to Salesforce that was built, built maintained by the engineering team, which I think honestly, Given you know when I joined, it was forty. We were forty people as a company. I actually think that's totally acceptable to have that, but I realize that it just doesn't scale. Like you, you want to kind of decouple that dependency, especially in a PLG motion. Decouple as much as you can from product and eng, just because any any sort of go to market needs is just going to become it, it, it can be a bottleneck for them. Like they've got other things to focus on, building products and whatnot. So, what I kind of the two big challenges I kind of or I guess opportunities I. I pointed out where we've got this monolithic custom script that's creating leads in Salesforce and that customer IO and Salesforce don't talk to one another at all. So we've got these kind of data that's like stagnating these two different parallel tracks. And so I figured, try to figure out a way to just kind of round this around the tech stack out entirely. I was looking at Trey and I think, I think, you know, I, I guess one thing about marketing ops is a million ways to do something right. So any of these solutions I looked at were, were a way to do this. I looked at Trey, thought it was, you know, certainly could have solved this. Um, but ultimately, I decided to go the MAP route, looking at HubSpot and Marketo, mainly because segment, you know, they play nicely with segment. They play certainly play nicely with Salesforce. And then you you can still have all, you know, emails, are obviously a huge component of them. Um, I ended up going the HubSpot route, mainly because it was just preferential around the segment HubSpot integration. And um, the sync was, you know, very robust bidirectional sync with Salesforce. So... That was kind of the big, big thing that went into me just evaluating these tools and figuring out what made the most sense for our business and being able to kind of, I guess, deprecate customer IO and um, deprecate that custom script as well and just replace them with something much more scalable and much more, I guess, democratized or, or just uh, decoupled for us to own in the go-to-market world. Yeah, it's it's an interesting one because even um, <clears throat> from a pure kind of like API perspective. Marketo kind of struggles as soon as you get into large volume because the bi-directional sync with Salesforce <clears throat> can get pretty dramatically impacted by, by the volumes of updates that are being made on, on one side or another, which can like really quickly lead companies into big struggles of how do you keep the two in sync? And then you start, you know, having a ton of conditions to filter out who you end up pushing to Salesforce to make sure that whatever updates happen in Salesforce don't trigger a ton of issues downstream, I mean, actually upstream back in, in Marketo. So um, pretty interesting to hear that, yeah, kind of what led to um, to HubSpot. And I, I believe then you have, um, you're also looking at, you're running a lot of the um, 
almost like product lifecycle campaigns from HubSpot. So you're triggering a lot of the kind of like PLG onboarding sequences from there. Can you tell us a little bit about <clears throat> how you're building that and kind of like what are some of the, the big tools that you have in place to do that? Yeah, honestly, that's a great question. I mean, what was great about the segment HubSpot Sync is that, you know, for to trigger a trial onboarding drip, it really you really just need to sign up and be designated as a trial by way of segment, which we which was working, you know, that was always kind of in place. So HubSpot was able to really easily, we we're kind of able to just port our existing onboarding drip one-to-one from customer into HubSpot and just trigger it based on, hey, you know, you signed up and plan and you know, trial plan is checked as true. Um where it got a little bit, I guess, more nuanced, where I kind of had to start building the tech stack out a little bit more, was we have a bunch of, I mean, you know, any PLG company collects a ton of product usage data. We're no different. And the tricky part with HubSpot is that we ingested all of our, I guess, they're classified as track calls. Like a track call for us would be like, you know, creating an app or like saving a retool app or connecting a database to retool were some of the most common ones. Um, but also like in that bucket was just like someone logging in and HubSpot was able to see in a binary since did these actions happen? Yes or no. And tie that back into a, into an individual record, which is great. However, for the purpose of, of triggering stuff, we wanted to get more granular. So like back to that connecting a resource piece, that's super valuable for us to know if someone did that, it's like a big, you know, product milestone. However, it's even more valuable for us to know which resource they connected. Google Sheets is, you know, intrinsically less valuable than someone connecting their, their you know, Microsoft MySQL or their Postgres database to retool. And that metadata was kind of trapped in the track calls. It didn't really persist in the HubSpot at the time. And so we decided to, in it, but that data all lived in the warehouse, in our BigQuery warehouse, which again, that existed from day one. And so, where that where that the opportunity that kind of created was for high touch or i guess and, you know a reverse etl tool to come in and really easily kind of bridge that gap so what we we're able to do is say you know when someone connects a resource to retool it, it's tracked into the, the data warehouse what it was if it was you know postgres what have you and we have a job running in high touch that just says hey you know whenever this field whenever someone connects a resource and that field becomes popular in the warehouse just map it back to HubSpot. We just, we, we passed the user ID in there. So it's really easy to get the primary key in the mapping. And then based on that, we're able to start distilling that information and using that, triggering that information on, on kind of on branched onboarding experiences or product actions, or, you know, like we're running in, like we're creating pilot, like we're running beta programs for some new products. It's like, hey, I want to look at all editor, all, you know, all admin users of Retool that have dragged, you know, five components onto the app canvas in the past six months you can get really granular with that in the warehouse uh, or in yeah and we can pull queries like that in the warehouse really easily run them back to hubspot by way of high touch and just create these super targeted lists as a supplement um whereas before you're kind of just limited to what what high level information you have in your um go-to-market systems right and it makes sense that even yeah i mean you were saying like there's like there there's a lot of value in knowing which resource they connected because even from an onboarding perspective, if I'm signing up for retool and I connect, um, you know, like a Postgres database, I want to make sure that the, the onboarding is going to reference that and tell me, Hey, here are like some popular use cases for people who connect Postgres and this other thing. And this is how, like, almost like here are some recipes that you should be thinking about. It's just, that's again, that's very customer centric and that's really having your operations kind of serving the best interest of the customer rather than say, hey, thanks for connecting something. 
now let's talk about building something um, without ever being able to um, to be relevant. And I think that there's a couple of things that you're hinting towards, right? So there's there is a way to solve this in segment directly, which would be that the track call would reference like you basically have a different track call for a different resource that are being connected, um, which is you know typically not best practice where you'd rather have the event be the event and then have like metadata properties but yeah that's one alternative and one of the things that i i see typically be a challenge also is that you know you were t talking about decoupling dependencies between engineering and go to market I, I assume you know segment implementation is something that is owned by product and engineering and not necessarily by go to market so it's really hard also for you to go and make that request you know, hope that it's going to be prioritized in a sprint and then have the tracking change, which also has impacts on potentially like dashboards and reports that they have built using the metadata information. Yeah, high touch is in high touch or the reverse CTL, I guess the way that the way that you can kind of interact with your data warehouse and persist data into your go to market stack is really fascinating, especially in the PLG world, because it, I mean, I guess for MOPS and the PLG work is it kind of blurs the line between marketing ops. Like typically in a you know sales side company, marketing ops is you own you know some of the web, a lot of the website experience, and you work really close to your marketing team, and you own everything from kind of that to the handoff of the SDR pretty much. Um, and in a PLG world, the line gets a lot more blurry because like for us with segment, like every single person that logs in or signs up for a trial, whether they're a customer or a trial user, what have you, gets tracked in segment, makes it into HubSpot that data gets passed to the warehouse and any, any of the go-to-market teams um, are kind of are able to build on top of this foundation that I kind of help bring in. So it kind of puts me in an interesting position to almost kind of blur the line between marketing and sales and customer success, almost like a life cycle ops type of slant on these things. So it's really fun and it, and it allows me to kind of, you know, support a lot more of our go-to-market organization than just kind of focusing like more focusing more so on the on the marketing and sales handoff really yeah that makes a makes a ton of sense um so one one thing um that that leads me to is kind of um who i mean yeah who who in the company owns kind of the this data strategy from a a go-to-market perspective like how do you think about that right there's like a bunch of data living in BigQuery. There's, um, you know, whatever you track in segment, there's like data in Salesforce. I don't know if you folks use Stripe or, or one of those kind of like payment processing, uh, which might not get synced into Salesforce, but probably goes into the data warehouse. So then there's kind of this like need for a holistic perspective on what do we know about our customers? Where do we have that information and how do we use it to better serve the customer journey? So I'm curious, like in the organization, who are the different people that what's the what does the committee look like to have these conversations and think about these are the gaps and the blind spots that we have and how we think about addressing them? Yeah, I think what we've kind of decided to do, I mean, we have all those tools, Stripe, Salesforce, HubSpot segment, you know, BigQuery. I think we've kind of as a business always operated as those as as a big query is our you know our data warehouse is the source of truth for all these things um really i mean that's kind of as a business we operate you know we use retool retool part of our part of our platform has like a you know a sql gui that you can interface with and like so like a ton of t a lot of the time people in the go to market team are just writing queries against their warehouse they want to be able to stitch things together build reports and dashboards within retool so that's kind of like a, a just a company-wide philosophy we've adopted um 
for the go-to-market stack, though, we've kind of decided to just consolidate these things into Salesforce as best we can. And so that's really where, you know, HubSpot and High Touch work well in tandem just to kind of get all the data we need into Salesforce in a, in a really strong data model. Uh, my manager, the head of RevOps, has kind of done a fantastic job just creating that that data model in the in building the I guess got like you know the data warehouse schema and we've got like a go-to-market schema within the systems as well that anyone is able to really easily slot into on from any of the revenue orgs customer customer success can has you know a, a custom object they can reference sales has their own SDRs have 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 ways that they know how to like a SOP that they can adhere to and then we on marketing do as well got it so, so let's say if tomorrow, so for example, on, on the, on, on retail's website, right? So there's multiple plans. So what in the calls to action, let's say on the pricing page, you can, you know, start for free on the freemium tool. You can try for free one of the two, um, middle tiers, or you can request a demo for the enterprise. Um, if, and I, maybe you already pushed this, right? But let's say tomorrow the reps want to know, oh, well, this person signed up for the trial version, but I want to know which plan they clicked on. What would kind of be the process there? Like how, yeah, how would that come up? Like what are the discussions to have? Who gets involved and kind of what's, what does the blueprint look like for putting that kind of project plan together to be able to surface that information? Yeah, I think it kind of starts with the principles of like, like for trial signups, like trial signups make up, you know, 99% of our inbound funnel with like demo requests being the other 1%. I think it really comes down to like, how does our sales process work? And what do we, what do we want the trial, you know, our trial sign of experience to be as it pertains to that sales process? So I think we kind of think about that sense, you know, this, this is a project that I worked on, you know, when I was bringing HubSpot in place, the next project after that was to build the customer life cycle and the, all the lead statuses and whatnot. And so that what that involved is working with really closely, I guess, first and foremost, for you now, like, Hey, we want the SDRs to handle these and talk to um, these trial signups. So, you know, first and foremost, meeting with that team, figuring out like, what do you guys want? Like, what's valuable to you guys? Because, you know, I have a perspective on marketing ops, but at the end of the day, the SDRs are the one actually talking to customers and actually having those conversations. So I think one of the biggest learnings I had from Cardo was just skewing towards making the, making the, you know, my internal customers happy and giving them what they need to be successful rather than kind of being prescriptive about it on my end and just hoping that's right and having to change it if it's not. <laughs> um, and so that's kind of the way that, that the, the, I guess the business context gets built. And then from there, it's just a function of figuring out what, what's the most logical place. So like for us, the canonical uh, place that the SDRs work out of is Salesforce. And so, hey, you know, if you're talking to a trial sign-up and you need to know what plan they're on or what geo they're in or how big the company is or much, how much money they've raised, what have you, or any of this, or like if they've logged in or invited people, what have you, we're just going to make that live in Salesforce and put that in a really clear place for you to see it so you can do your job. And, you know, if you, if we want people to personalize on those things, just make that data abundantly clear and um, up to date and, and, and make sure it's rock solid. Makes sense. And that brings like a, can be a short answer if you haven't given too much thought to it, but what's your take on uh, PLG CRMs? Like there's a lot of companies out there that are saying, Hey, we're going to be like a CRM, but built for PLG first. Uh, so that it makes it easier to have that data surface from um, from BigQuery or or what or Snowflake or whatever data warehouse. I mean, my my take on it is like it, it, again, like as a marketing ops person, I've got places I prefer to see data. 
like I like to, I, I skew to have data in HubSpot just because it's easier for me to build lists for my email campaigns, for example. But for the SDR team, like that's not really, if I have data that's locked in HubSpot that I, it's, it's tedious for them to get, then that doesn't really do, it's not valuable for the business. So I could see, I, I see PLG CRMs being valuable insofar as they are just, if it's a way to collapse and consolidate and, you know, if, if an SDR, we can, we can have them work out of, you know, one of these tools and that I can work out of also, I think it's great. But if it ends up being kind of a third interface on top of, you know, an existing, like the exist, if, it, if it tries to add a new kind of foundational component to the tech stack, that's kind of where I have hesitations. I prefer to just empower the team, like let the team tell me how they want to work and what they want to work out of rather than be, be uh, prescriptive about it. No, that makes sense. Um, and so maybe switching gears um, into something a little bit different, I think one of the um, unique elements in your journey about Retool is also, if I'm not mistaken, this is the first time that you have a, um, you're selling to developers, right? I think historically, like even Concord, like arguably is not really uh, developers. So what are some of the big differences that you see in how you know, the go-to-market functions work when you're selling to developers? I think it's a really good question. I mean, yeah, this is the first time I've sold to like a more technical audience. Um, I think really where it manifests is just in the way that we, I mean, I, I mean, they don't like being sold to. <laughs> it's like the kind of the, the simple answer behind it. So how do we have the conversations that are more like conversational? Like for us, retail is an interesting case too, because we're a really broad platform. Like there's a ton of, of, you know, in number of use cases you could solve for with retool. And I think first and foremost, I think a place we've seen a ton of value in is being able to have our, our SDR team to reach out to someone, just have a conversation. Hey, saw you signed up and you connected Postgres. Great. You know, you're kind of halfway there to getting value. Is there something specific you're trying to do? Can we help you do that? Really just, I think it's, it's a much more customer centric approach. Like uh, on the flip side at Carta, Carta, Carta sold cap tables. And if you're on Carta's website and you don't need a cap table, then chances are no, no amount, no amount of what we say or do on the sales side is really going to resonate on the flip side. If you need it, you need it. And so it's pretty easy to have like, you know, kind of have more, more content tailored around that where it's like, Hey, here's like, you know, you already need a cap table. Here's our thought leadership on how you can like, you know, structure equity offers and packages. So like that was all just a good kind of way to capture people that had that initial interest. Whereas um, retail is a lot more just, just agnostic of way, way more agnostic of a platform. Like you, we get people all the time that may not have a use case in mind, but they could still be a good fit for us. And so how do we kind of talk to that? And so I think, I think kind of the, the simple way to that, that this is, that this manifests is just on the marketing side, a lot more of our content we put out is just very, customer centric and thought leadership. And it's not really saying like, Hey, look, like here's how you can use retools. Like here's problems that people are solving and they're using retool to do it being very much so more so like fit center on the problem, showing value and honestly leaning into the fact that it's like, Hey, look, like you can solve this thing somewhere else. Like you don't have to use us, but here's a way that someone did it. Just really kind of owning and leaning into that. And on the sales side too, if someone comes to us and say, Hey, I've got this use case and we know it's not a good fit for us, then, you know, there's no point in trying to, we, we were kind of talking to the team and say, look, there's no point in trying to, to bend them to your will, just help them just drive value because they may have a use case down the line that is a good fit for us. Yeah, it's a lot more, a lot more consultative and, and really kind of like as you're kind of helping them 
um, gets value from the product rather than helping them understand how to um, to make that decision. It was funny. I was talking to um, uh, like Vercel has like I mean a lot of the anyway a lot of the business to developer um, companies have that kind of challenge where they don't necessarily like the it takes a very different kind of salesperson or sales approach, right? Than like going from Carta where it's like very clear what you're doing. It's like very, it's kind of narrow, but then there's like deep competition. And it's about like why your tool is the best rather than a tool that can be a lot broader, that can do many things. And it's about how you help people, um, you know, figure out if this is indeed the right tool for, um, for what they're trying to do, which, goes back to then why it's so important to have things like around personalization, like knowing what, you know, database they connected or what, what things they have in place, because if you want to help, you need to know what's going on. Otherwise it's just going to be very high level and it, it you know, uh, developers are easily put off by what seems like a salesy uh, tactic. Yeah. And, and we, we actually internally call our SDRs, ASEs, associate sales engineers and for, you know, for the purpose of, you know, optically, it looks like, okay, I'm not talking to a, to a sales rep, but also they, we are, you know, investing in them as technical, you know, trying to build them out as technical um, practitioners of retail, just so they can actually have opinions and perspectives and really guide them in the right direction. And if there happens to be, you know, a need, an enterprise need, great. But really, first and foremost, it's about helping our, anyone that comes into the, their, across their bow, realize value. That makes sense. And have you find that there's like specific or kind of unexpected um, requests from the sales team around information that they they want to have that you potentially haven't seen before or it's like pretty straight, mm. pretty standard? It's a good question. I mean, I mean, really and truly, a lot of the just ask we get on the marketing side is around like, you know, more customer use cases and customer stories and so that's kind of where you know when we put out other content like webinars for example we do or any kind of we put out like a, oftentimes you do have customer stories or we just do webinars where people if you're curious or retail whether you're a user or not we'll showcase what our customers are building and then you can just ask them questions it's actually they, they are super resonant with our audience and so that's something i've not really seen before like when we put on webinars at eventbrite it was much more just like hey here's how you can sell more tickets um and that's kind of like a and then just it's not really not really a lot of it doesn't doesn't open up a bunch of discussion and dialogue whereas the what we're doing at retool with that format does right which goes back to the fact because there are so many use cases that can be enabled like the sales team is asking for some form of enablement around each kind of use case to be able to go into a conversation and say oh by the way like this thing you're trying to do like i know of this person who also was trying to do it here's what they did here's what they got and like being able to tell that story to build that um, like thought leadership and, and feel like you're an advocate of the user rather than someone just trying to shove the product down their throat. Yeah. And the other, the other thing too, is we're also, we also have a community aspect of this where, you know, we have a, you know, retail.com slash community. If you wanted to go on there and just ask questions or, or talk to other people that are using it. And it's, it's just, it's a lot more, um, I guess PLG kind of just really necessitates the need for that. Yep. Um, and maybe to kind of, yeah, I guess like last question, because I know we're, we're about to, to hit the top of the hour, but kind of what's, uh, what's next for, um, yeah, the MOPS and RevOps functions at, at Retool? What are some of the big kind of projects that you folks are, are working on or looking to, to start working on? I think an interesting thing is um, 
kind of consolidating the ops orgs? I mean, like, the, un, not uncommon at all that that you know ops teams kind of get absorbed into or, or just or re, restructured into a rev ops, and we're no different. And I think what's what I actually really am excited about that is that it's not just doing it for the sake of kind of. I mean, it is doing it for the sake of bringing all the ops teams under the same roof, but doing it in a way that allows us to align from a systems first approach to to optimize for the customer journey. And so I think that's where I'm really excited figuring out ways to make, you know, how do we how do we align the our, you know, our marketing ops and demand gen strategy for the to optimize for the customer experience and make sure that the handoff is smooth and make sure that, you know, the SDRAE handoff is really, really enabled again, not just to make sure that our internal teams are don't have a lot of administrative headache, but just so that our customers are getting value and in, in you know not experiencing a lot of friction to the onboarding experience as well to the onboarding to the customer success uh you know ownership and how do we you know how do we treat scale you know uh, self-serve customers that are scaling and growing really quickly that's i think it's just all really really heavily aligned with our customer their entire customer life so i'm really excited about that that makes sense and and when you're saying ops do you folks have a uh, data ops or biz ops that's more on the kind of like CFO or engineering side, or are you talking consolidation of the um, kind of under what's like typically rev ops kind of function? Yeah, more so that like we're like we're kind of rolling sales ops, success ops, marketing ops under a rev ops umbrella, but we'll and, and to that end, we'll all continue to work really closely with our, with our biz ops and data functions as well. But we can do it in a bit more, a lot more kind of, um, I guess, a lot more in concert. Yeah, uh, it's super interesting because we had uh, Jason uh, Billig, who was the who was a Mops at Patreon a couple couple seasons ago, and like he actually ended up making that move if he was in the in a Mops function, like maybe a little bit. I would say as technical as you, so maybe a little bit more technical than your typical mops, like writing SQL and things like that, and move to the uh, data ops function as the kind of like main person to interact with the the rev ops org. So really coming from the rev ops org to bring that DNA, uh, but then like learning a lot more skills on the on the data ops side to make sure that there was like a clear um, and clean interface between the two teams. Yeah, I mean, I. I... I think that's one of those roles that has really kind of been born out of the PLG world. Interesting, like an example of where I would have loved to have had that, like at Carta. Carta had a really data-driven approach to upselling. The, you know, the top of sale, top of the funnel sales motion was all sales-led. You know, you can only come in by a demo request or a chat experience. But once you're a customer, the product is heavily modularized in a way that if you take very, very specific product actions during your life life cycle as a Carta customer then you have a very explicit need for a for an upsell product like just you know just a quick example is it's tax season form 3921 so if anyone's exercise options you know you have to fill out one of those with the irs and it's a very manual process for for uh, company admins so every single employee that exercises options has to have three different three three form 3921s generated and if you know you can imagine if you if there's a thousand person company and hundreds of people are doing that in and, and it's due every January by the IRS, you can imagine that that person, the admin is going to have a pretty, pretty rough time in October, November, December. And so for us, that was a really easy data driven upsell moment where it's like, look, let's go in there. Let's go in our product or customer data, find everyone that has form 39 purchased is checked, not is checked, not true and has had over X number of option exercises and pull that data. And 
it was simple on paper, but actually really difficult um, because, you know, we'd work with data science and they had, it was something that they would just, you know, go into their queue of a, of a million different projects and we would get it back whenever we, whenever we would get it in form of a CSV. And then we would have to, you know, manually scrub and dedupe and go over with the account management team. And then finally, after all this, you know, weeks later, we'd be able to send one email around this and, you know, hope to God that we, that we, um, you know, clean the data as much as possible. I could, I, I see, you know, kind of that go to market data ops type of role as being like an integral to solve a challenge like that and make that super scalable and repeatable. Yeah, I mean, it should be so straightforward if, you know, you have the data in, in the warehouse of like who, like number of like shares exercised or yeah, like have triggers on that. And then Salesforce, you know, if they're, you know, what products they're, they've purchased and then be able to just surface that and have like at the account level and have the CSMs kind of figure out which accounts they want to go and potentially have the upsell conversation with. Yeah, exactly. Makes sense. Uh, any last parting thoughts uh, or anything that like how could people reach out to you if they have any follow up questions or if they want to do a deeper dive into tech stack and things like that? Yeah, I mean, if anyone ever wants to reach out, I'm always happy to connect on LinkedIn or shoot me an email. It's just Jake at Retool. It's <laughs> super easy. Um, always happy to chat about any of this type of, you know, I love building. I find that super fascinating. Um, and I'm also, you know, blessed to have had great mentors and managers in my career and, you know, always happy to, you know, have conversations around people that are curious to break into marketing ops or, you know, talk about challenges they may face in their current org. So I find that stuff really, really fascinating. It gives me a lot of, you know, excitement to chat about. So always open to, to that door is always open to, to talk. Awesome. Well, thanks again for um, <clears throat> joining us today and sharing a lot of awesome insights. Um, Next week, for those of you who want to join again, we'll have Robbie Wetzel from Splunk. So we'll stay in the kind of like um, B2D uh, world with um, a little bit less PLG, but still like pretty heavy on the like how to sell to developers with like a uh, company maybe at the, the stage we'll find a retool in, uh, in a year or so, hopefully. Um, in any case, yeah, thanks everyone for joining. Again, thanks again. Jake for joining us and for all the wisdom and we'll see you guys next week. Thanks for hosting.